We're continuing in our uh, series on the life of Samuel, and we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4 this morning. So if you want to turn there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, or you just use a table of contents, that's okay. Uh, But turn, click, swipe, tap, or whatever you need to do. Get over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we're going to start with the second half of verse 1. And we'll look at the whole chapter beyond that. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the powers of our enemies. The people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news, the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, 
Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This morning's passage is a, a narrative in two parts, in two acts. And as often as the case when we're dealing with narrative, the theme sort of makes itself known only after consideration of the big picture. And although the Bible isn't a story, um, it's not a you know, short story or a novel, there are similar devices um, to a short story in biblical narrative. So that just like you wouldn't read a page of a short story or a paragraph of a short story, and then claim to have all the author's insight. Now, you have, to, you have to thoughtfully consider the entire narrative. So as we've worked through these chapters in, in Samuel so far, we've, we've often taken that approach, more often than not. And, and today we have a narrative sort of in two acts. Now, the previous three messages of this series, we looked at the faithfulness of Hannah and her husband, Elkanah. We saw that Hannah found her greatest joy in her deepest surrender when her hope was most squarely on God. And we looked in the second message, however, that this was a dark time in Israel. Despite the faithfulness of Hannah and Elkanah, Israel in general, led by the priestly clan of Eli, was in moral decay. A reminder that even those who profess themselves to be the people of God can be desperately wrong and find themselves without an opportunity for repentance. And two weeks ago, we saw that in the midst of this darkness, God raised up a prophet, Samuel. The light of God's word would not be snuffed out. In chapter 4, the author brings us back to the state of Israel in general, and it's, it's not good. The Israelites go to war against the Philistines, and that's an important detail. We can't ignore that. The Israelites go to war against the Philistines. A couple years ago, I preached through the book of Joshua. And we saw a lot about these uh, Philistines. When the Israelites crossed over into the land that we call Palestine, they were tasked with defeating and driving out the Canaanites, a loose association of people who lived in the general region. And they included the Philistines. God wanted the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites because they were wicked in God's sight. And God's patience had run out with them. If Israel had failed to drive out the Canaanites' wicked practices, those practices would sort of infect Israel's culture. But God promised that if they were faithful and persistent, they would succeed in driving out these people. Persistence was necessary. Patience was necessary because God promised that he wouldn't drive them out all at once, but little by little. And that was partly because they weren't big enough or strong enough yet to control such a large territory. And God said that if they did that, the land would give way to wild animals. Which is a good reminder, just kind of an aside, in going back to the messages we, we preached on Genesis 1 and 2, that God intended human civilization to be a, a development and a cultivation of this world, to subdue it and put it to good use. The idea of the world being overrun by wild animals was not looked at as a positive thing, but as a 
failure to work out our creation mandate. And so from the garden, mankind was tasked with subduing the earth. And, and I think there's a sense here that being overrun with wild animals was, was almost a worse fate than having the wicked Canaanites there just a little bit longer. So God could be patient with pushing them out. At least in their cities and towns, for all their wickedness and for all their problems, the Canaanites were carrying out imperfectly the creation mandate to subdue the earth and put it to good use. But these Philistines were from a region of Palestine that the Israelites did not completely purge during the days of Joshua. And again, that wasn't a blight on their record. They weren't necessarily expected to. Uh, but at, on the other hand, by the time we get to 1 Samuel 4, it's been a few hundred years. The fact that the Philistines continue to dwell in the land can't be read as anything but a failure on the part of the Israelites. But there's hope. They're going to war. And things look good at the outset. If you look at a map, uh, Israelite was camped up in the hills a little way at a place called Ebenezer. And while the Philistines were below, at the bottom of the hills in Aphek, and if there's one thing that Obi-Wan Kenobi ever taught us, it's that having the high ground is always better in a battle. Sorry, first, first trilogy, very few good moments. But what's, what's more, the place where Israel has encamped is remarkable. Ebenezer means stone of help. The name is probably an anachronism, meaning it's a name the author's readers would have been familiar with, but it's probably not the name that Israel called the place at the time. Uh, it didn't receive this name until a number of years later. Actually, it was Samuel who gave it that name. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But it's a name that was given uh, by Samuel as a marker, uh, it was after a major military victory, and he, he puts up a large stone at this place and calls it Stone of Help as a memorial of God's faithfulness and help to Israel. Again, that's another sermon. But an ancient Hebrew reader would have known that history, would have known the story, would have known that the place is Ebenezer because God had been faithful to Israel. And so the Israelites, we get this picture, Israelites are camping on the high ground. Anyone who understands a little bit of military strategy knows they've got the, the goods on the Philistines. They're camping in the place that is named for God's provision and help. We know they've been tasked with driving out the Philistines. That was God's mandate for them. So everything looks like it's set up for a victory. You might imagine many of the Israelites charging down the, the slopes of the hill while a host of others shot a volley of arrows down upon the Philistine line. But when the battle drew to a close, the Israelites who stood were fewer in number by a significant margin. 4,000 slaughtered in battle. That's an immense total. Just to put that in perspective, only 19 battles that the United States has ever fought, and all of them in the 20th century had more casualties than that. Only Gettysburg in the pre-modern era comes close 
So this was a major loss. So stymied, the soldiers are wondering what went wrong, and the elders suggest a plan of action. Go get the Ark of the Covenant. Go get the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle in Shiloh. We'll bring it with them, and, and we'll have it go into battle with us, and its presence will secure our victory. Now remember what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's an ark, which means it's a chest. It, it has things. It holds things. It wasn't ever really opened, but inside were reminders of Israel's covenant with Yahweh. There were the Ten Commandments that God had chiseled on stone. There was Aaron's staff that had budded to prove that Aaron was the true uh, spokesperson under Moses, the true priest of God. And there was some of the manna, some of the food which God had miraculously provided the Israelites while they wandered in the wilderness as a reminder of God's provision through this miraculous deed. And the whole thing was overlaid with gold. And then uh, on top were two golden cherubim, which were symbolically guarding the place where sacrifice was made for people's sins. The place between the cherubim was envisioned as the earthly throne of the invisible God the mercy seat. It was the centerpiece of the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple. When the Israelites were traveling from Sinai to Palestine, everything had to be carried wherever they went. They were designed to be portable, and so as they traveled, the ark went first with the Levites who carried it, and the rest of the people would follow. It signified that the people were following God. They were following the Lord. God was leading them and directing them into the land as he had promised, and they were not to go anywhere unless God first led them there. Now, that was a temporary arrangement. God always said that this would rest in the place that he had chosen when they entered the land. And when they got into the land and they got situated a little bit, uh, the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh. And the elders say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. But notice something. They're not placing their hope directly on the Lord. Instead, they believe the ark will save them. Now, maybe that's just a metonym. Uh, a metonym is like when we say the White House said today, and we know that White Houses don't talk. We know that when we say the White House said something, it means that the people who speak for the administration put out a statement. And, and maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, the ark is just a way of saying God will protect us. But I don't think that that's what they mean because of how this unfolds. It seems more likely that they are treating the Ark of the Covenant as a, a talisman, as a fetish, as a good luck charm. I was brought up in a church, but I, I didn't really have, as a, a young person, much understanding about the Christian faith until... I was much older. I had a, I had a general sense of Christian things, though, and, and I was, grew up thinking that Christian-y things were important. I just didn't understand what any of them were, and I had lots of influences, I'm sure you all did, and I was really interested in, like, ghosts and, and things like that, and then I would get spooked out in my basement because um, there was, like, you know, always that creepy back room. And, um, and so in situations like this, I had a little, I had a little charm 
I'd acquired, I think it was from my grandmother. I don't even know my wife knows this story, but um, uh, this little tiny little book, maybe you've seen them, they're called like a little Bible. They're, they're about like an inch and a half square at best. And they have like some random spattering Bible verses from the King James in them. And, and I, would, I would conceal it on my person somewhere, you know, because I didn't want people to know I was walking around with this thing. You know, so like I mean, I'd roll it up in my sock or something like that. But, but like if, if I had that on me, like then, you know, no, you know, these evil spirits or, or whatever, just creepy stuff was going on in my basement or wherever I was, it wouldn't get me, right? It was, it was a talisman. It was a charm. It was as if I could, I could manipulate God into protecting me by carrying around something that I suspected that God was fond of. When I became a Christian, I gave up this sort of fetishism. Uh, rather than pleasing God, I, I think that actually angers God. God. God doesn't guard us because we engage in religious rituals or practice certain actions or say certain prayers or carry certain tokens. God guards those who are in relationship with Him. Fetishism is like ignoring your mom for long stretches of time, but then suddenly when you need something, you start casually doing and saying things to butter her up. And she might be fooled for a while because she's your mom and she can't see inside your heart. But over time, there's a good chance she's going to come to realize that you really don't want a relationship with her. You just want her goods. You want the things that she can do for you. And she's going to stop being impressed with your little tokens. And so it is with God, except there's no ramp-up period because you can't fool God for even a second. He sees directly into your heart and He knows why you're doing what you're doing. When I recognized that my real problem was not that there was some spirit that might come and get me, uh, but that I was a sinner and that, that God really ought to punish me for my sin and that I needed a rescuer, well, then things changed. I repented of my sins and I, I trusted in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of my sins and rescue me. And because of that, I didn't need any fetish or talisman. I was secure because of my relationship with Christ, not any ritual I performed. What are your talismans? What are your, what are your tokens? What are they? Maybe it's even a superstition. Those things that you're clinging to, you think that if I do this, if I carry this, or if I have this, or if I say these things, or I do these rituals, this is going to make me okay with God. God's going to bless me. God's going to look down on me and favor me because I'm doing the right patterns. I'm following the right prescription. And you know, sometimes these can be even good things. We can, we can so take good things and pervert them and to twist them into things that are evil. Like reading the Bible. We are, we are encouraging, for those of you who walked in late, in your bulletin is a Bible reading plan, and we are going to really encourage this church to read the Bible together next year. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of great things that will come from that if, if even a few people jump on board with that. But there is a real danger because our, because our hearts are so evil that we can take something as good as God's Word 
And we can, we can start saying, well, I read my Bible today and I checked it off. I read my Bible today and I checked it off. And I read my Bible today and checked it off. And that doesn't make you right with God. That doesn't make you good with God. That, that pride of thinking that you can just placate God by doing your little daily devotion. He doesn't want your reading time. He wants you. And that will include your reading time, for sure. But do you, you see the difference? It can be so easy to take something good and to twist it into something evil. In fact, almost all sin is exactly that. Starting with the very first one, Adam and Eve took something that was good, a tree that God had made for good purpose, a tree that he'd allowed them to do so many different things with, and they twisted its purpose and they took it for their own self. There's no talisman, there's no token, there's no fetish, there's no ritual that can make you right with God. But Christ can make you right with God. So we might suspect that this counsel from the elders, those who should have been wise and faithful among the Israelites, is folly. And those fears are heightened when we read that next line, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, um, backstory, Hophni and Phinehas are not good dudes. Um, these guys are incredibly wicked. But to get access to the Ark, you're going to need to have a priest. In truth, only the high priest ever was near the ark. And the high priest only did that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But as we've seen, Hophni and Phinehas were not the priests anyone should have wanted. And they used their limited access to take the ark. The army might have been bringing the ark of Yahweh into their camp but they were also bringing the enemies of Yahweh into their camp. That is the clear message that we get about Hophni and Phinehas from chapters 1 through 3. These are the enemies of God. Nevertheless, when the army sees the ark, they cheer so loudly that the Philistines could, be, uh, could hear the reverberation off the hillside and, and down in their camp. And their reaction tells us a great deal about the background of the situation. Somehow they got information. They, they presumably had some spies. They got information about what was going on. And they have three reactions when they hear what caused their shouting. First, they say, a god has come into the camp. Now, most of the surrounding nations practiced idolatry. In fact, I think all of them did, but we'll say most to be on the, the safe side. With idolatry, and it varies from culture to culture, but there's a lot of similarities between different religions and different cultures. An image of a god is so associated with the god itself that it can be considered one and the same. In, in many idolatristic idolatristic religions. I don't know if that's a word. But uh, the way this happens is that first the image is crafted and then in a religious ritual, which again varies you know, depending on if it's 
ancient Canaanite or modern Hindu. Uh, but then a religious ritual, the deity is sort of beckoned to inhabit or associate itself with the image so that the presence of the image, being the presence of the image, could be seen to be in the presence of that god. So the Philistines associated the ark in their minds with sort of the idea of an idol or an image. To them, the Israelites bringing it into the camp was the same thing as bringing a deity into the camp. Second, they said, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So the Philistines may have recognized that the Israelites had brought a god into their camp, but they also believed that this was one among many gods. Maybe they saw the god of the ark as the chief Israelite deity. And perhaps they saw that bringing this one in would summon the pantheon of gods into the camp. Whatever the case, they believed that this collection of deities had actually rescued Israel from Egypt. So they're, they're not too far off from the truth in some ways. And that tells us two things. That firstly, the, the story of Israel's divine deliverance had not been entirely lost to history. But secondly, that the story had become corrupted and perverted. And the most likely reason that the Philistines believed that a collection of gods stood behind the Israelites is that the Israelites were, in fact, worshiping a collection of gods. That is, the Israelites have become polytheists. And although that sounds scandalous, it shouldn't be shocking. The Israelites had toyed with false gods from, from Sinai when, when Aaron made the, the golden calves through their conquest under Joshua. And during the period of the book of the Judges, they, they worshipped all sorts of Asherah and Baals. If the Israelites were sold out monotheists, that is, a people that only recognize one God. That would have been very weird in 11th century B.C. Palestine. So weird that it's hard to imagine it wouldn't have stood out. In other words, that'd be the thing that everyone around the Israelites would know about them. Those guys are weird. They only worship one God. That was the point, by the way. They were supposed to stand out as weird. And that light was to draw the nations in to worship that one God. Instead, the sad reality is that the Israelites seem to have so significantly abandoned the proper worship of Yahweh that their neighbors thought that they were polytheistic pagans. The third thing the Philistines say is, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And these words tell us that the Philistines recognized that the deities that stood behind Israel were potent, but they were not omnipotent. They could be defeated. And taken together, we get the distinct impression that Israel has completely abandoned the first two commandments. I am the Lord your God. I, singular, am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, am, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. To the Philistines, the Israelites worshipped a rather boring, run-of-the-mill deity who was one among many. They might have been powerful ones, more powerful than some of the other deities out there, but they were otherwise unremarkable. And that means that Israel had already broken the third commandment as well. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That wasn't about using God's name as a swear word, though that would certainly count. Rather, they had called themselves the people of Yahweh, but they lived lives so at odds with God's standards of righteousness that it was in vain that they were called God's people. It was worthless and meaningless to be called God's people because they didn't look anything like what God's people should have looked like. In taking up God's name, they had given God a bad name. And the result was a massacre. 30,000 soldiers died. So did Hophni, so did Phinehas. The prophecies that had been given to their father Eli in, in chapters 2 and 3 had started to come true. And more tragic even than this, the Ark of the Covenant was taken as if it were a mere trophy of the spoils of war. The nation of Israel lost its most treasured possession, the most sacred place, the place where once a year a priest would make atonement for the sins of a nation. To lose the ark was not merely to lose a religious artifact. It was to lose the only way the people had to be in right relationship with God himself. And in this sense, it was tantamount to losing God himself. Well, that closes Act 1. Act 2 begins with an unnamed Benjaminite, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, running from the battle back to Shiloh to announce the news. As best I can tell, I tried to map this out. I probably spent too much time trying to map this out. But as best as I could tell, this trip would have, taken, it would have been about 25 miles, maybe a little bit less, with a, it would change in elevation about 200 meters or 650 feet or so, just to kind of give you a picture. We don't know how long it took him. We don't know how many rests he took, but he was undoubtedly exhausted when done. And he arrives with his clothes torn and dust on his head, the Hebrew symbols of grief and lamentation. And on his way into town, he passes Eli. The high priest was apparently at a post, perhaps at the city gate, presumably awaiting word of what had happened. He was, he was terrified of what might happen to the ark, it says, so, so he's out there waiting and the dust and ashes on this guy's head, the torn clothes, might have told Eli all he needed to know, but he was going blind, as it says here, but also as we learned earlier in the book. And, and so perhaps we should make nothing of it. But the 
It's interesting that the young man from Benjamin says nothing to Eli on his way into town. Instead, he, he enters the town and tells the people, and they respond with an uproar. The people had shouted once before uh, at the ark's presence in their camp, but this shout was one of dismay, a very different character. And Eli only heard the noise. He couldn't make out what it meant. And a man finally comes and tells the old priest the bad news. Israel had suffered a major defeat. The sons were dead. And the last... He was the last old man his family would ever see. But more than that, the ark was lost. The first two facts no doubt rattled Eli, but this last fact was too much. He fell over, and with his age, 98 it says, and his weight, he snapped his neck. The camera sort of pans over to Phineas's wife, who we're told was about to give birth. She was late in her pregnancy, and when she hears the awful news, the shock sends her into labor, and she doesn't make it. And before she dies, she names her son Ichabod. But the Kabod part of that name means glory. And the I, the I, prefixed, they're not sure, but it might mean something like when you put it together, where is the glory? But the point is, she's thinking about glory. The glory that has, in her words, left Israel because of the ark, because of her husband, and because of her father-in-law. It's more than a passing comment, though. And I want to camp here. Because I think her words unpack for us what this entire narrative is about. The word for glory, like we said, is kabod, or really uh, kabod. And it's a, it's a word that has a range of meanings. Kabod is like it, it, its metaphorical sense, like glory is like its metaphorical sense. At its base, the word means something like heavy or weighty. And so by extension, it might mean a weighty person, a significant person or a significant thing. And a person could be said to have weight, heaviness. In the case of God, his weightiness is, is incalculable and it, and it sort of stands on its own, its glory. You don't even need to mention a, an amount that he has. God simply has a weightiness of his own kind and his own sort. And so the glory or his weight need not even be specified. But going in the opposite direction, like the verbal form of this idea, kabod, cannot just be weight, but being weighed down, a burden. And so metaphorically, a person who's weighed down might be hard-hearted. And so then when we look at this chapter, we have this, this fascinating play on words that tells us everything that's gone wrong in Israel. We might think that there's, there's three kabods, there's three glories in this chapter. The first kabod is, is Eli says that he was heavy, but it's the same word. And we noted a couple weeks ago that this might be a hint that he had gotten kind of big, kind of fattened up by enjoying the sacrifices his sons had stolen from God and from the people. His daughter-in-law said that the kabod had left Israel, and indeed the heavy one, the fat priest, was dead. But she also said the kabod had left because of her husband. 
And when we consider the sins that Hophni and Phinehas committed against the people of Israel, her husband was indeed a great weight, a great burden on Israel. A burden that had now been lifted. Of course, the other kabod with the ark, the glory. To refer to the ark as the glory is to say that God's glorious presence had left Israel because the place where they had met with him had left Israel. But in a very significant sense, the glory did not depart Israel when they went to battle against the Philistines. That was the presenting symptom. The glory had departed Israel when the Israelites ceased to give glory to Yahweh. When their practices and their habits began to mirror the culture around them so much that they were indistinguishable from the Canaanites in which they lived, they were already lost. They were already dead. It wasn't so much that the glory left Israel as that Israel had left the glory. Perhaps more than ever, Western Christians are facing enormous pressure to bow to culture. Now, let me make this clear. No one is pressing you to give up your faith. But they do want you to have a modern faith, a Western faith, an American faith. That's acceptable. The Israelites worshipped one God and one God only. At least that was what they were supposed to. He ruled over all the other pretenders to the throne. He was holy. He was righteous. And he demanded a standard of righteous living from his people. And the Israelites entered into a land where the people worshipped all sorts of deities and whose ethics were widely divergent from what God revealed in Scripture. And those surrounding cultures, they didn't care if Israel worshipped Yahweh so long as they worshipped Yahweh in a way that fit and didn't cause waves. You know, if they, if they went ahead and worshipped other deities alongside of Yahweh, or if they just reinterpreted God's laws to be okay with the morals of Canaanite culture. And if they couldn't do that, at least go along with it and, and not make it a big, awkward stink. That won't happen here, though, right? Surely, when, when slavery became a seemingly indispensable institution to the southern economy, so-called Christians wouldn't suddenly twist God's word to support their economic preference, would they? Or surely, when, when minorities started fleeing the south and moving into northern neighborhoods, so-called Christians wouldn't flee from their new neighbors, would they? Surely when the, the intellectuals determined that modern man couldn't stomach the miraculous, so-called Christians wouldn't try to rewrite their faith to de-emphasize or write over the virgin birth or the resurrection, would they? Surely when the, the sexual revolution came into full bloom, so-called Christians wouldn't begin to overlook sex outside of marriage or redefine what the institution of marriage was, or even what sex and gender were, would they? Surely, when a politician is put forward 
The so-called Christians wouldn't be afraid to call him or her out on immoral policies just because the letter after his or her name matched the one of the so-called Christian, would they? But wait, we've seen all these things and more, haven't we? Maybe we are in danger of being more Western than Christian, in danger of being more American than Christian, even as the Israelites were in danger of being more Canaanite than Israelite. We know what's acceptable to do. We know what's acceptable to believe and think in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our cultures, in our families. And too often, we make conscious choices to get along, to compromise our beliefs, to compromise our ethics, to compromise our actions for the sake of being good family members, for the sake of being good neighbors, for the sake of being good Americans, for the sake of being good Republicans or good Democrats, good Ohioans. The Israelites saw themselves as the people of God. And if we look at the history of the Christian church, even in this country, even where we stand today, unfortunately, it's often been the case that the people of God have not very much looked like the people of God. I don't know where that line is. Where we stop looking so much like the people of God that we stop being the people of God. I don't know where that line is. God knows where that line is. And I'm glad that I, I don't need to know where that line is. But I do know that we're not called to toy with the line. We're called to be the church of Jesus Christ. We're called to be a redeemed people, a, a people whose lives are marked by the Holy Spirit, that very Spirit who by His name and by His nature makes us holy, who calls us into a new family that has different priorities sometimes than our earthly families, calls us into a new community that sometimes has different priorities than the earthly communities. It calls us into a new kingdom that sometimes has different priorities than our governments. The old adage that we need to be a people who are in the world and of the world is a good adage. We're not running away from what this world is and what this world's become, but at the same time, we can't be marked by it. The Israelites were called by necessity to exist in the midst of the pagan Canaanites. And over time, God's rule would be extended even over those areas. It was necessary for them to be among the Canaanites. But they chose to become Canaanites. And even so, there's a way to be called the people of Jesus and to really not be a church. 
But there's a hope, even as we read this morning in Romans 9, God will never let His people perish entirely. He's always left a remnant. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. And for those of us who maybe find ourselves compromised, maybe are finding ourselves, calling ourselves by the name Christian, but not living a life that is marked by Christ. We find ourselves as people who have taken up his name in vain. And then we are part from the glory and the relationship with God. There is a man, Jesus, God in the flesh. He's coming, we celebrate this season. And he went to a cross and the glory departed from him. Forsaken by his Father. So that the glory could come to us. So that if we place our trust, place our faith in Him, and repent of our sins, He will make us His own. And He will call us by His name. And that is a great hope and a great promise for those who have compromised that name, Christian, and for those who have never known that name, Christian. I and mean, for those of us who are called by that name, the story reminds us of the danger of what can happen when we become more cultural than Christ-following. That it is possible that there is a line, and I don't know where it is, but let's not be a church who lives its life trying to find a line of how far we can abandon the culture of Christ to the culture of America and still be the Christian people. Let's be the Christian people that the Holy Spirit is calling us to be. Let's pray.